You are listening to the Evolution Exchange podcast, a platform we've created to bring the Nordic tech community together. My name is Charlotte Roberts and I'm your host. So firstly, I just want to say a massive thank you um, to everybody for joining me today. Um, We've got Marcus, Frederick and Arwin, um, and we're going to be discussing how to use machine machine learning successfully for business. Um, So before we go ahead and jump into the questions, I'd just like everyone to give a quick introduction to themselves. Um, So if Marcus, if you'd like to go first, that'd be lovely. Yeah, sure. yeah, my name is Marcus and I work as head of data science at Baby Shop Group and I've been here for uh, almost two years and uh, here I work with a small team of data scientists to leverage uh, data and machine learning for various use cases, both uh, like on-site, for example, on uh, product recommendations or, or ranking, but also in, in communication. So. Uh, maybe how we leverage, uh, you know, CLV bidding in Google or or product recommendations in email or demand forecasting in within the buying team. So it's a vast set of, of ML use cases and that's what I find exciting uh, with the job here. Definitely. Well, we definitely got the right guests on, on this podcast then. Um, thank you very much for that um, introduction, Marcus. If um, Frederick, if you'd like to introduce yourself, that'd be lovely. Yes, thank you. My name is Frederick. I'm heading the data science team, as well as being a product owner <clears throat> at a, a text analytics company called Gavagai. So what we're doing is uh, text analytics within the customer experience domain. Uh, so we we treat uh, our customers are they they want their customers or understand what their customers are saying to them in in, in surveys and support tickets and um, and stuff like this uh, in in a bunch of languages. I think we have more than forty right now. Uh, so what I do is help uh, dealing with the the algorithms for for the natural language processing, uh, and as well as being the one in the partner discussions to understand what people, our partners, actually want and need, and what kind of what kind of shape our roadmap has to be going forward. So that's what I do. Lovely. Thank you very much, Frederick, uh, for your introduction. And Arwin, um, last but certainly not least, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Certainly. Hello, my name is Arvin and I'm head of the data science platform team at Danske Bank. Danske Bank is one of the largest banks in the Nordic and the largest banks in largest bank in Denmark. And in my team, we're um, aiming at providing and building services for data scientists to utilize, as well as working with a mission to accelerate the analytics agenda across the entire bank. Yeah. Oh, perfect. Thank you very much, Arwin, for for that introduction. Um, so, right, well, we'll go ahead and jump straight into the um, to the questions now. Then, um, so the first question, um, again, this one's been submitted by Arwin. So, Arwin, your question is: What are the key components required to enable successful machine learning? So, if Ar- Arwin, if you'd like to give a bit of background behind this question, and then I'll let everybody else jump in. Certainly. So I selected my question based from essentially uh, based on the area that I'm working with, tried to select one of the questions that we're tackling and I was interested to see what the different viewpoints are from different vantage points and different companies out in the market. Because there's there's no doubt and, and it's certainly not been evading anyone that machine learning and data science is a large part of today's multinational data driven organization. It's almost as a must-have these days compared to a 
good to have or uh, it's a need to have, but it's not simply having a selection of data scientists or model developers to sit together in a team and start churning out models, even if that may be on the surface of it. But there has to be a quite successful ecosystem around them to enable the developers to really and fully be able to um, to reach their, their potential and do what they are hired to do. So do not have them do essentially items or do part of the model life cycle that they're not experts in or didn't expect to do. So we are working very um, diligently and, and very mindfully um, with that part in the bank, trying to set up that type of modern landscape. But I would be very much interesting to hearing what the key components would be to enable a successful machine learning, successful model development, and not just having good model developers. That's a very good question. Um, if I may, I start. I, I told you already. I, I, I'm in sort of a speaking mode here, so um, <clears throat> you can interrupt me at any time. So I think one of the core things that is needed, and this is because I come from a, a fairly small company, uh, is to have a good business understanding. So I mean, when you do the the models, uh, they have to solve. Um, uh, brings or it's not solve a problem. They have to solve a problem, of course, but they also have to bring some value to to the end customer. Uh, and I think having that understanding, I think that's critical to 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 be able to both motivate people to work on the the more daunting tasks, and also to have gain like an understanding uh, from internal stakeholders on what you need to do, also from external stakeholders to to, to get uh, to have them understand as well. So I think I think the connection with with business is is really crucial. Yeah, I can uh, only agree with with Frederick there. I think it is multi-layered uh, question of what is required uh, really i mean it can i think it also depends on the experience uh, of the team arwin as well because i feel like it uh, on a more general sense it you know can say that it should start with that we realize that it's about the the problem maybe not the solution which we so often maybe do that mistake within data science and machine learning that we maybe are too algorithmic focused and and maybe too little less as Frederick was mentioning to you know what is the underlying problem we're solving here so we're not solving the wrong problem maybe but then you know once you have the business understanding and you want to scale maybe your ml efforts then we maybe come into a different layer of from my point of view at least uh, enablers which is maybe the first one is do you have good data for what you're trying to solve and the tools you're trying to use with it and maybe secondly um do you have a good tech platform to then mm. take that idea data and you know both train the whatever model you have now decided to use and then serve that and use that in production to for the end consumer or the internal use case or, or whatever it is so i think it is a little bit multi-layered question mm. i think we can approach from different angles or that's what i see it at least so it depends a little bit on the context of where you ask that question i i also think it's i agree with you uh, marcus and i also think it's um, a matter of where in the maturity uh, you are as a company. So if you're starting out, you need a certain set of things. And if, if you're more mature, then, then there are other things that you need. Uh, I mean, in, in, in the beginning, you probably need competence. You need to build a team. You need to have uh, an understanding from all your stakeholders uh, from, from, from top down uh, to, as to why to do something like this. Whereas if you are doing it more regularly, uh, you perhaps need to focus on scale and, and how to 
do A-B testing and with, with more models and so on. So I think it's, as you mentioned, it's a, it's a really multi-layered question. It's, a, it's a, a really good question. And I don't think we can come to a certain answer unless Arwin is sitting on the 42 answer here. I'm not sure. Yeah. No, I, I, I certainly wish I did, but that's uh, some of the things that is occupying us and some of our, our best and brightest developers on a day-to-day -day basis and some of our key stakeholders. And I agree that it is indeed a, a multi-layered question. And looking at just two of the dimensions here, as I, um, the organizational part and the technological part as well, of course, it, it has to do a lot with maturity that different companies would be on different uh, places on this on this journey. But it would also be interesting uh, for me. So Danske Bank is, of course, a very large organization. I think we have somewhere north of 20,000 employees, and that gives us a certain maneuverability and in terms of resources and priorities. And, and what we have done is that our model lifecycle has been, uh, to a large degree, carved up where different teams, different specialized expert teams have responsibility for various areas. Uh, but I understand that that might not be the case for a smaller company who might not be able to split up that life cycle into that granular, into its granular components. So it would also just be interesting to hear how you would solve that. Do you have, for instance, the same type of resources, the same person would do development, but also monitoring, for instance, and also data engineering and data cleaning, or, or where would you see the natural demarcations? Yeah, I mean, from my point of view, so uh, to give some context, uh, you know, Baby Shop Group has an annual revenue of a bit more than 1 billion CEC, and we are 80 people here at the headquarters and uh, three people in the, the data science and ML team. So it's uh, quite a bit different from, from Danske Bank, I would, uh, I would assume. But uh, I think, so given, given the background of, of where I work, here so far at least, we have had a very end-to-end uh, ownership of our models and use cases but of course you know that's within data science but then we come back to Fredrik's question that it's about what you're trying to achieve because um, you know it's end-to-end -end here so you know for us it's about getting querying the data from the from the data warehouse and making sure that is good pre-processing it so we can use it for for the model that we intend to use, training the model, you know, uh, serving the model, uh, retraining, inference, and the whole whole pipeline. But then it also comes down to, I think it needs to be a demand also from the business that says we have this problem, and 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 then maybe data science or machine learning can be the solution to that problem, uh, just to what you know we are optimizing for when we are mo modeling is also what the business is optimizing for because maybe. Uh, so there is not a misalignment there. I think it's also uh, also important. But I would like to have your uh, input, Arwin, or thoughts on on you know the end-to-end -end ownership of uh, development and research and productionizing versus having carved out roles that you maybe encounter in larger companies. Do you have any pros and cons that you have seen working in such a large organization? Yes, so I think that there are, are, are a number of uh, factors in the pros and cons, like you said, way in there. So for instance, scalability is one aspect to have in mind that if you have very clear cut teams doing what you're good at, you can easily scale up. For instance, if you need to see you need more model developers, you just scale up in that area, or you perhaps more in the monitoring part or the data part, you can scale up in that area versus if you have a sort of jack of all trade developers or resources, they might be much harder to come by. 
and which might make, might make it a bit more difficult to scale by. For instance, in my team, we're currently 11 people and a few consultants, but we have a very clear job profile. So if we would ever need to scale up and have that need, we are roughly aware of where the market stands and what type of resource we would need. It's not a type of niched hybrid profile, which we would only expect to find in our own company or some affiliated company. So that would be, of course, one benefit with aligning oneself to where the market has done its uh, carvings and, and, and demarcations. Um, on the other hand, of course, I can, I can just assume that it gives a larger degree of flexibility, perhaps, to have the same people do multiple items, because the more teams you have the more silos you get and then those silos will need mm. to communicate with each other and then you have managerial roles sitting in between and stakeholder management comes into play and the various teams backlog and it could be that if the teams are are too detached from each other in a large organization one gets more funding than the other which cause bottleneck situations um so it's not as if it would necessarily mm. be a fine-tuned well-oiled machine just because it all happens to be in a large organization it has to do that then you get the whole steering um, yeah. issues coming along with it and of course the further away the teams are in the organization the further up you have to go to find their their mutual uh, mutual manager um so it so and it, and it and i think it's only natural in in this day and age with, with global multinational firms that there is no silver bullet that you may start off with a small setup or have a few people do everything but then as you scale up you will need to reorganize you will need to restructure you will need to move to a perhaps more decentralized setting and then when you get really big again perhaps you need to again uh, centralize it in certain matters to have because of compliance or security reasons to have some functions sitting centralized, is having center of excellences. And then when you get even bigger, perhaps you need to decentralize against certain areas because they get too detached. So I think the modern company must be preferred to be rather flexible and agile in how they work, to not move in the same um, direction, not be afraid to change the strategies when the world around them changes. I, I just um, I have a comment on the question for Arwen later on. So just to put in perspective, Gavagai is a, a small company um, on, on, on all scales. So I mean, we're less than 20 people. On the other hand, uh, we don't have a designated data science team because we have found that that not really to work. So what we have done is to merge the uh, <clears throat> the development team with the data science teams. And now we're one product team instead and focusing on one single product. So that that's something you can do when you're small and you have like short ways of communication uh, just to put things in perspective. So my question, Arwin, I think you touched on this, um, but I mean, you're operating in a highly regulated uh, market uh, or, or business uh, and you're in a business also that that where I guess that machine learning is a high stakes one. So, I mean, you, you predict stuff that are affecting people or people's life potentially uh, in, in various ways. How do you see that uh, sort of affect the ways you are working or, or, or I mean, you're mentioning silos or centers of excellence? Uh, do, you, do you see that uh, that, that your, um, let's say, your environment, your context is, is shaping the way or affecting the way that you can work? Yeah, that's a, that's a very uh, astute and, and correct observation. Um, a, a bank is a very regulated environment and even the least regulated parts of it would still probably be more regulated than, than some other areas in, in different branches and companies. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, we have, we utilize 
data science and advanced analytics across the full spectra. So we do it, for instance, in the commercial area, which may not be as regulated as opposed to, say, the risk and compliance area, which is heavily regulated, not to mention the fraud, um, anti-money laundering and so forth, which are very regulated areas. Um, and then also in pricing, again, maybe not that much regulated and so forth. And then it goes back to um, the question of which functions do you centralize? So for instance, if you say you would centralize certain model hosting or deployment platforms, then that comes with a, the benefit of having one centralized platform. You can pool your resources either to build it in-house or to procure a third-party solution. And there's, of course, different philosophies around that. But then again, the most uh, regulated area would set essentially the, the floor on there. So you would need, even if you have like regulatory differences across the different areas, you cannot have, if you're utilizing the same platform, you cannot have uh, accommodate to the least regulated area because then the most regulated one wouldn't be able to use it. So then that would be something you would have in mind. Same thing mm. with latency, for instance, if you have certain fraud applications and um, having customers purchasing with credit cards, you need some very high latency solutions, but mm. you can't have a customer um, if you think that you're in the store and you're paying for something, even if you'd had to sit and wait three seconds for that card to be screened, that would be something you would note as a customer. Mm. Uh, and that, that would not be doable. So it's the directly there, you add on the fraud layer to it, all of a sudden you have high latency demands. You add the risk, you suddenly have very high upkeep um, or, or very strong regulatory demands, for instance, um, and so forth. Every area you add have some demand on it. And then the more you centralize, the more you need to ensure that these. So then suddenly you need a, a platform that both accommodates for very high latency, but also can accommodate for, for instance, very specific risk regulations. And that, of course, puts a higher demand on which solution you utilize, either if you build it or mm. if you, you buy it. Um, so that is definitely adding the complexity. So it becomes more than the sum of its parts, so to speak. So then you go back to, all right, which, then that's also a strategic decision that must be made in which aspects do we decentralize mm. and which does it make sense to centralize because the downside is still less than the upside we would have as opposed to having that aspect sitting on the different areas. And I think that as companies scale, um, they will more naturally face these type of questions because as a small company, and, and you please correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong here, but I can imagine, like you say, you're working very much as one team, one product. Mm. It's almost like mm. a product team in our bank. Everyone have the same direction and they go toward the same area. Mm. It's not really that much branching out, but as you grow and maybe you have different products or you have different areas, even in the company, you have maybe five products in fraud or 20 products mm. in commercial, then it might make more sense to start asking, all right, where should we decentralize? Again, having yeah, one yeah. product, maybe it makes a lot of sense to centralize and then going back to the whole um, having to have an agile company and an yeah. agile setup being prepared to scale um, up and down at demand. Thank you. That's that's really insightful. Um, I mean, so I mean, the context that we're operating are clearly uh, affecting the ways that we can do machine learning for business. And I mean, yeah, it's it's one it's one thing to have the power of a big organization, uh, but I guess that you all also have like more, well, as you as you put it, perhaps a less agile organization in that sense that you have to, you know, just bite to it and, and work for a while and then you put your head up and see where, where are we now oh, in the right direction. So let's do some thinking of, of organizations. And I think we are right now we're at the, at the other, other end. Uh, we are like 
trying to find our niche in, in a way and a way of working. Um, so, Marcus, what about you and 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 and, and your company? Where are you in, in, in all this? Uh, fortunately, we work in, in e-commerce, so in terms of regulations, uh, we have an easier life in general, I would say, than, than Arwin, even though I haven't worked in, in finance myself. But uh, we, of course, have, have uh, compliance or the regulations when it comes to GDPR and, and personal information um, stuff. But in general, it's, uh, it's something that we maybe not have to take as serious. Uh, in the sense that that Arwin has, so we have more freedom in uh, maybe the machine learning use cases that we can apply, and also maybe the explainability of models and and so on. Uh, not the same requirements, even though it's always always good to to keep in mind. But I think just to summarize my thoughts on the original question of what you know constitutes successful machine learning, or uh, I think yeah to my experience at least is to focus, be quite pragmatic in the solution and focus more on the problem than the solution maybe, or like mm. understand that it's about more about the problem and then than the than the solution. And and secondly, uh, my experience at least is that that better data or better feature engineering, you know, beats beats uh, mm. better better model nine out of ten times. Um, yeah. So yeah, so uh, then to scale that, you know, we can talk about or oh, MLOps and you know which pipeline orchestration tool should you have? Should you go serverless or Kubernetes and so on? And that's maybe a, a discussion if you if you have those scaling uh, issues. But I think those two uh, takes you quite quite far when you're an operational data scientist uh, or machine learning engineer um, at least. And I think that so, the whole point about pragmatism is, is a really good one because I see you know you see so many companies out there that try to be Google or or Amazon in in what they do when they clearly don't need to have that those capabilities um, or, a, or, a, or a small company trying to emulate a big one or even a big company trying to act as if there are only 20 people and have that flexibility um, but being just pragmatic and see what are our needs which issues are we trying to tackle um, sometimes you don't need to be Google but you can actually find some very good solutions if you have an understanding of your own business and not try to just copy paste from what what others have have done, but with that being said, also having an open eyes and ears to learn from what the best are doing, but to adapt it to your own uh, situation. Yeah, so pretty much stay in problem space, kids. So there's what we want to be at at first, and then move to solution space when we are clear about the problem. Definitely. Oh, lovely. Some really good points there from um, from everyone. So thank you very much. We'll move uh, swiftly on just to the to the next question now. Um, so this is Marcus's question. Um, so this is as an organization, what do you think are the most important factors for sustaining a high efficiency of productization machine learning applications? Um, so if Marcus, if you'd like to give a bit of background behind your question and then I'll let everyone dive in. Yep. So the background the question is based on uh, that when you know a company or an organization maybe is smaller or starting its ML and data science journey the progress is usually quite rapid you make uh, a lot of progress quite quickly you manage to apply uh, data science for various use cases quite successfully perhaps and leverage machine learning quite the different ways and, and so on but as as your uh, applications of machine learning and data science grows um, you know 
what we in the software development world would maybe refer to technical debt starts to mount up and build. So the you know rate of innovation or progress slows down usually, which from a data science perspective, maybe we're not so used to this as in the software development world, uh, which has been around for so much more longer. So my question to you is, you know, especially coming from maybe so large companies and maybe small as well, <laughs> it's it's a it's a good mix here. Uh, how do we or for, for the listeners out there as well, how do we when we grow and apply machine learning to more and more use cases and in more and more contexts, how do we uh, sustain a high rate of innovation, um, you know, as successfully or as much as possible? Go ahead, Arwen. Yeah, I was just chewing on that one. I mean, um, it's almost as if I would want to just uh, immediately um, send send back the question because I would. So of course we are a a, a a big company and we're already what we're doing is um, already set in place. But I would be very interested to hear. So what does a, a a company that is perhaps not very small but in the grow like how have you accommodated to this because you're more flexible and perhaps not as much burden down as regulations and and whatnot? Because whenever we need to do anything these days it's like turning a tanker around it takes a lot of effort a lot of resources a lot of time you need to bring in people who are experts in very niche areas and so forth but so so we don't we can't act with that uh, speed and flexibility which perhaps a smaller company could do um so i'd be interested to, to see how how your approach to, to that to that that would be actually yeah yeah i mean i can uh... <laughs> I can answer uh, right. Not the expected answer, but it was actually I, you know, something I was thinking about. I think it's a very good question to see the mm -hmm. point of view from a small company, a medium-sized company, and a, and a large company, because that's something we're all tackling with. You know, how do we how do we grow from our phase that we are into the next one? Do, do you want to add an angle as well, Fredrik, before I, I jump in? Yeah, as being the small representative from from a small company here, I can say we we only have one product. So I mean, that's that's uh, when we innovate, it's. Uh, Let's put it like this. We have had troubles with innovations uh, and that hasn't been the number of ideas or what we have done or rather it has been what we have done with it. So we had we had to have had to focus. We have had numerous products, but in the in the past year we have decided to focus on one only because we're spread too thin. And that brings me to the next angle. I mean, focus to bring some business value. Uh, the other thing is uh, having the right competence uh, on the teams will allow you to 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 scale and that means everything from from data scientists to people working back and front end uh, and also one thing that's really important to us since we're serving uh, predictions if you will we're serving analysis what what we're doing we're we're selling a service that relies on machine learning in, in some form uh, for people professionals to use to make analysis of their data uh, so quality is a, a paramount paramount importance to us uh, and, and that's something that we have to come back to every time. So these things are actually things that could risk uh, innovation is quality, uh, because if you if you launch a product, then you have to maintain it and you have to maintain quality. Um, competencies, people come and go. You need more more new competencies. You have to, to relearn stuff. That's something you have to do as well. Uh, and there was a, a clever number three that I forgot completely right now. Uh, but but I think I think that's the 
Uh, that's the key thing. Yeah, the, the thing about technical depth, I would say, uh, you should have like a reasonable amount of let's let's call it model depth or or, or data depth or whatever. Uh, you shouldn't strive to remove it all. You should have like a reasonable level of depth that you could work with, um, and you shouldn't wait with innovation until you have cleared all depth. That's that I that's something I think you should do. Um, so well, that's that's my my small company angle on things. The competence, quality assurance, uh, focus. Yeah. So uh, me jumping in again. I I don't have three three bullet points uh, on the top of my head, unfortunately. But but what I can say is that uh, yeah, being more of a, a mid-sized company, I think it uh, I think it is about you know, um, working, setting up a good framework that you can apply for machine learning use cases. Mm. And for us at Baby Shop Group, that has meant a, like a standardized um, machine learning pipeline orchestration tool. And we have chosen Kubeflow pipelines for that. Uh, and then we have, uh, you know, the underlying serving and so on. But like every machine learning use case can, can then do that in a, just like in a standardized way of of components, and sometimes they're reusable, sometimes they're not. With 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 the full full end-to-end -end, uh, pipeline, but at the same time, I would say when it comes to this technical, because because I feel like sometimes the the answer is you know we have to we have to have more, we have to increase the technical complexity complexity of things and have more frameworks and standardization and you know we should have infrastructure as code and okay we should have terraform okay we should now we have kubernetes can we go serverless and we try to become more and more like that but maybe on the other hand as i see it then you increase technical complexity instead so you would need uh, you know even more competence within that so th that's why i have this question as well because it's a hard trade-off for me like in this position i i realize the the shortcomings of our current infrastructure and but I also realized the downsides of of countering that because it leads to even higher uh, complexity. So so it's not so so uh, it's clear either. <laughs> so let let me offer like a counter question here. So let's say oh, there's a push and a pull, like like uh, um, a push from 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 your clients and market that 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 is saying. Uh, well, we need this, and, and then you build that, whatever stakeholder you have. And also you have on the innovation side, maybe you have like, um, you're pulling things or pushing things to your, uh, I mixed those up now, but you're, you're telling your class of customers what you can actually do. Some, you have some new features that you can use here. And I think that's perhaps where innovation comes in. Um, so if I put the questions like this, let's say a fringe stakeholder from the company comes and say, well, we have this problem. Can you can you uh, can we make a shining vertical out of this? A minimum viable product or, or whatever uh, vernacular you're using. How long would it take for you to to do that? How, what's the time limit? It's like one week, three weeks, six weeks. And and if you put um, put like a, a number on that on that question, what would it take you technically to to be at that level? And that's are you are you ready to make that kind of investment as a company to to be at that level? I mean. Um, well, it's a hard question, but I mean, could could it be quantified in that way? Yeah, I think the part about quantification. I just want to add a, add an, an extra layer to to Frederick's question because I think the part about quantifying it is, is quite interesting because when one speaks about efficiency, um, 
what do how do we measure deficiency like is it just purely in terms of revenue growth which mm. may be very difficult if it's a back office function for instance or an infrastructural function or do we measure efficiency in terms of um how many models that are put into production just the absolute number of of models or do we measure efficiency in terms of number of automated decision made perhaps um or even how many, which parts of the life cycle that we can automate, if we can automate half of the decisions, but then by next year we can automate um, some more, say 70%, is that an increase in efficiency? So of course, knowing how to measure the efficiency is, um, <clears throat> and that goes back to, of course, knowing what one tries to do. I think that's a, that's a very, very good point, uh, Arwen, you know what? <laughs> yeah, efficiency is about, uh, yeah, output over time so so what is output here um and uh yeah fr from my point of view it's it's a bit a bit like i already maybe spoken about a bit it's a how you know maintenance kicks in uh, for every every new thing you develop and uh, oh a more maybe uh, you know scope creep if you will mm. on the current applications that starts to can we have this instead it would be nice if if this worked and uh, oh I, I don't think i have a very well-defined question with one answer it was just interesting to hear everyone else's perspective of of yeah, you know because of course sometimes you you know what you i mean what you want is not necessarily something that you may be able to to measure so you would need to find a so-called a proxy kpi for instance so maybe you're not really interested in the number of models you're churning out, like maybe it won't differ if it's 10 or 12 models, but you have some sort of understanding that, all right, the models drive decisions or um, sales in some other area. And even though you cannot directly measure the revenue increase based on some infrastructural changes you make, for instance, if you introduce term form like you mentioned, or Kubernetes or whatnot, what you can measure is the number of models. So then that proxy becomes the closest thing to what you think um, to what you're actually looking for. So knowing also, not only knowing what you want, but also how you can measure it um, becomes an, and sometimes an equally interesting mm -hmm. challenge. Um, because at the end of the day, you know, we're all companies, we need to drive revenue, we need to create some type of profit, but especially in a large company, it's not, <clears throat> it's not always very clear what one small component does to add revenue um, to a very large company. So therefore, we try to find other KPIs which are more, much more easier for us. And that's again going back to you know, high efficiency and then are those KPIs then, is that what we deem as efficient? Um, is that how we increase efficiency by ramping up those, those KPIs? So, and then, and then once you know what you're measuring, then it's also easier, going back to your, um, going back to your original question, Marcus, then it's also easier to know what are the important factors. Because again, if the KPI you're measuring is say number of models churn out, well, then maybe it's a factor to make sure that the data scientist can actually spend time developing models. And then if they're not, if one data science says, all right, I'm only spending 60% of my time on developing models, then why is that? Well, perhaps it is because the data is of such poor quality that I need to spend reminding 40% of the time just cleaning data. Mm -hmm. And then that becomes a factor for you to, to look at. Because then you have this chain that, all right, if I improve the data quality, the data science needs to spend less time cleaning data, which means that they can 
um, do more models and churning out more models. That's our KPI because that's what we believe drives revenue, which is our way of seeing that we're an efficient business. So, so it's not always, a, a, and it, this becomes even more complex in a large organization when you need to backtrack in, in many more, more, more steps. And, and I guess that's the one of the benefits of being a small company is that is um, coming back to, to you, Frederick, is that you can very clearly map from one individual to how they contribute to a business mm. and you know mm. exactly and then then perhaps it's even if that specific person is efficient will increase the efficiency yeah. of the yeah. company like it's dependent on an individual yeah. efficiency um and maybe not so much even on the process but mm. that okay you need a data scientist your process is perfect but your specific data scientists might not be as efficient and that's what's weighing mm. down the process so then it suddenly becomes human factors matters yeah. in a whole different way than in a large company where you can even have an <clears throat> entire team which is inefficient, but it won't affect the, mm. the end state um, that much because the company is so big. Yeah, so that's what I mean when I when I point out the competence as being one of the thing things that that that's needed for for sustaining high efficiency. Um, but I also think I think that the, as we mentioned, Arwen, the thing about measuring things, I think that's really good. And I think that what Marcus mentioned is about sustaining things over time. I think if you put these two together. Uh, you could sort of make up a budget for in innovation. That is, how much uh, how much things are are your team is your team um, uh, can they cope with? I mean, if you have like a, a set of pipelines that they are owning in a sense, and they're producing a certain business value, and you have eyes on all the different aspects from data quality, which we will talk about in a bit, uh, in terms of data readiness uh, and so on, then could you cram in more uh, innovation in terms of a new pipeline? If you cannot, I mean, then then your budget is uh, innovation budget budget is full, and you have to do something about it. And and maybe increasing increasing efficiency is not the way to do uh, to do it. Maybe maybe decommissioning an, an old pipeline is a, is a better way to do it. Uh, and all always with the aim of measuring things in terms of business value. I would say, uh, like primarily, uh, and also in terms of cultural stuff in the company. I mean, if you are having people work on things and it never sees the day of light at the, at the end for, for an end customer, maybe the, the people will become really sad and leave. So that's also something that you uh, you have to be innovative in, in that sense as well. Yeah, I can just finish with what we did a while ago uh, to try to capture, or it's it's not really measuring a business output it measures uh, input uh, of time so doing you know simple pie charts over longer pie to, like time frames of what do the team members spend their time on is it maintaining current systems is it developing features for existing sy systems or is it uh, you know developing completely new features or systems to to things that do not yet exist and maybe a fourth uh, stuff and that that also gives you know gives a sense to yeah. um, what do we do and and how does they add value and you know as Fr Frederick you pointed out you know where do we need to take action to either reduce uh, some of the pies or or add more <laughs> more full pies <laughs> more employees uh, if we still can't do that yeah. Uh, but I, I I think I think that's a really good thing I mean if you look at the teams uh, working. And I, I I know this since I since I'm in charge of our roadmap and I can see what we're working on right now and I, I I I'm one of the persons helping prioritize stuff. If 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 we by chance would end up not working on on roadmap items for sprint, then I know there's something wrong. Either more bugs, 
you know, people are sick or, 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 or away or something. Uh, and of course, if we are stalling uh, development of new things just to maintain old things, uh, that's a big, that's a big non-efficiency that has to be addressed. And and that's uh, with that said, that's something to measure. I uh, would say innovation with as well. I mean, how how how's your burn down chart look after each sprint? How much of the things you plan to do did you actually do? Uh, given that your team is good at, at, at estimations, if you work with this and so on. So I mean, I think it goes across the board, um, and it, it's not uh, not only well productionized ML applications. That it's sort of including everything that that you do with software. So. If the goal is to do innovations, which I think it should be, then you have to have good eyes on, on what you're doing right now and why you're doing it. Oh, definitely. Some really great answers there. It seems like obviously um, every size business, it brings their own challenges, doesn't it? <laughs> In their own way. Um, but yeah, with that uh, moves us on quite nicely now to uh, the next question, uh, which of course is Frederick's question. So that's with regards to readiness, how do you ensure the data you have is correct and understood by all stakeholders in order to make business from it? So with Frederick, if you'd like to give a bit of background and I'll let everybody jump in. Yeah, sure. Thank you. OK, so so the background to this started a, a couple of years ago. Uh, I was working in a, in a different capacity back then. Um, and one of the tasks that I had was to help Swedish public agencies work better with machine learning and, and AI and stuff. So they came to us uh, at, at that company and they said, we need help with this and that. And, and we have data. It shouldn't be a problem, right? Um, but it turns out that there's a problem. If you're a new newcomer to to a field uh, and you come in with high high hopes, then then you have to manage your expectations, right? So there's a framework called data readiness levels, which is similar to the technology readiness levels that NASA devised uh, many moons ago, and it's a way of essentially communicating around data and what is needed to make business value from data-driven applications. So when I started talking about public agencies, they were, were of course, new, newcomers and were, um, it was a particular uh, set of challenges that they faced. Uh, and now when I moved to a production company, we still have the kind of very related um, challenges, even though we are facing very mature customers and we are, if I may say so, quite mature ourselves in, 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 in working with our data. But it's still, uh, we need to talk about data readiness in order to bring all the stakeholders that are needed aboard. It could be lawyers uh, for GDPR or ethical reasons. They could be the DevOps people and they're actually pulling things from data lakes. It could be the data scientists that are uh, building models and stuff. It could be software um, engineers that makes the system work really. And there's of course the business people that has to know about this because if you're doing something, it has to be, has to have some kind of, of potential value at least. Um, so going back to the question, um, well, how, with regards to data readiness, then how how do you or should we ensure that the data we have is at least at par with the business objectives uh, that we wish to achieve, and also um, that all stakeholders are are along for the ride? So maybe I can start with with Marcus because I, I'm I'm curious about your your kind of business because you mentioned it was not as highly regulated as, as Arwen's business and you mentioned something about um, uh, search and recommendations and stuff. 
Um, how do you make sure that if you have an idea or someone tells you to go explore this, do a new feature, uh, how do you make sure that you have the right data and you can manage the expectations from the stakeholders? Good question uh, and good background as well. I think on a more high level, what I've realized in the past six to 12 months is the wonderful thing of single source of truth when it comes to data. So um, historically, we have had um, maybe not the best technical setup. Uh, so there has been existing different realities depending on where you looked, but um, the past uh, six months ago, roughly we have made some very good strides in making sure we have uh, very good, let's say, production, if you want to talk uh, uh, like uh, uh, Kafka streams of, of producing data when it comes to single source of truth for, for every like type of data. So that that helps in terms of like, uh, yeah, just so, so there is there is no misalignment of what we're looking at. Uh, then, I mean, there are many aspects of data when it comes to leveraging it for for recommendation systems or or maybe some more sensitive uh, sensitive things. I mean, the, yeah, how do we know if we have the right data? It's um, I can just fill in with some as with some aspects of what what I yeah. what I mean with right data. So, I mean. Um, one thing is do you uh, well essentially uh, is the data accessible is it valid is it of use so uh, do you have programmatic access to data one example is where we didn't have was that when when our customers sent us the data as pdf files i mean that's a wonderful uh, format for presenting on screen but it's uh, quite I, i'm sorry charlotte you told, told me not to to swear but it's a shitty uh, way of of storing data for for further analysis I mean, so so for, for one part, it's actually um, available, but it's not useful. So that's one aspect of things. Um, and then, of course, if you're using third-party data or GDPR or SRAMS2, whatever frameworks apply to you, you have to be clear about the legal stuff. Uh, and all all the way up to that, you have to align the data with the use case that you're you're working on. I mean, if is the data even enough for solving the kind of business problems that you're trying to address? I mean, that's the kind of aspects I'm looking for. Uh, yeah, so usually when, when we tackle different types of, of problems, if it's recommender systems or if it's demand forecasting or if it's just reporting, um, st starts in, in, the, in the opposite end of the production of the data, let's say, or the, uh, you know, start with what are we trying to solve or what are we trying to understand and what data would, would be needed for that and then work our way back. And, and as you say, where, you know, where the end user for reporting looks in our BI tool, you know, that captures it from our data warehouse, which in its turn has like a couple of transformation on that data. So there are many steps, as you rightly points out, that mm. could affect the correctness of the data or the validity of the data. So, I mean, that's that's one one challenge. Maybe I think that with with newer tool, if it's like uh, DBT for maybe data warehouse transformation, or if it's uh, Grafana for for like stream data, I think it makes it easier to see where you have data problems, perhaps where the data falls off uh, in your 
pipeline. Um, but then, oh, GDPR. I, I think it's my from a more personal anecdote. I think that it's. I think that there is a cons like a belief within ecom, for example, that this type of data that we will be so limited by is so incredibly value valuable. But I want to argue that from behavioral data that is, uh, you know, not uh, identifiable, let's say, or just how someone behaves without knowing who who it is exactly, like a session, for example. It, you can do so much with. You don't necessarily need who who is browsing. You can you can get so much information from that and, and personalized experience that way. Mm. Uh, I think it's it's valuable. But maybe, oh, I, I feel like I'm maybe not answering your your question in a good way. So sorry but for it's, that. But it's no, yes, you are. I mean, it's it's uh, it's also. I mean, when we brought up data readiness, and I still to talk, talk to our partners about it. It's it's because just to have questions and and to think about well, okay, so data is not a given. And in data, there's also a business problem hidden somewhere or, or the opposite. So, I mean, just just getting to turn it around and ask questions about one's own reality, uh, data reality, I think that's a good answer enough. Uh, so, I, I mean, there's no there's no there's no fix for for bad data. It's just managing expectations. That's that's all it is, I would say. Yeah, and I, th I would think you have gone a long way if you if you know it's bad. Then you should yeah. be happy, also, because yeah. <laughs> then you're not going to use it, uh, thinking it's good. Yeah, that's that's true. So, so Arwin, uh, in your context and your in your situation, do you have any any issues with data, or is it all set because you're you're your own data generator in a sense? You're you're controlling the the processes that generates the data, or is it something, or, or maybe not? We actually have um, perfect data. <laughs> just just joking. It's. Uh... <laughs> No, no, this won't get Good better one. as you as you scale. Unfortunately, I think it's uh, it's just um, the issue kind of because the challenge morphs, and uh, because we we do a lot of our own data producing, we we produce very, I mean gargantuan amounts of data, um, and that of course brings its own questions and mm. challenges, and not to mention the previously mentioned legal framework on how how this data is handled, and then the same data data set. Um, you're legal allowed to do some stuff with it. Let's say if you have a risk application or fraud application, but you're not allowed to do some stuff with it for a commercial or pricing application, for instance. So as your 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 demand grows, then the whole question about data readiness and the data is correct. Then it's not just about is this data um, correct in the sense that it's not corrupted. Mm. It could be that the data is perfectly clean and perfectly well, but it's not correct for your use case. So let's say exactly. you're trying to do a commercial application. The data is fine, but you're not allowed to use it from a legal point of view. Mm. Then it's not the correct data because you can get into troubles in that regard. So then it's not just no longer about data quality purely, but then you have adding a, a legal element to it, for instance. And then, of course, not to mention the whole scalability aspects. Um, we have, of course, so certain areas have tremendous amounts of, of data. And if you want to build, say, batch models or live streaming models or whatnot, you need completely different types of, of solutions as, as opposed to if you are, and particularly if you want to build a model which requires constant stream of being fed, constant stream of data, or type of, again, going back to certain fraud applications, um, hundreds or, or tens of thousands of customers might be doing card purchases at the same time, um, all that data flowing and needs to be 
handled all at once, as opposed to a model which maybe uh, provides advisors with advice once a month or 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 once every quarter, um, or or whenever a customer want to go and do a loan, for instance. So then you also need to make sure the infrastructure is is up to date because you can have the correct data all you want, but if it's not going mm. through the infrastructure, the infrastructure isn't isn't scaled enough, then um, then you won't be able to 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 do much much mm. with it. So as mm. you you scale, you you just add additional dimensions. And as, because as you scale, it's probably inevitable that you will be start to create, produce your own data. And then the questions are, well, where do you address that? Do you address it at the source where the data is created? Or do you have centralized teams which have full responsibility or manage data questions across the entire organization? Um, so yeah, and, and, that, and I think that an important point here is that from a so taking a company uh, uh, like Deskabank, for instance, of course, when the bank was founded many, many years ago, no one really had in mind that one day data would be a challenge. I mean, they didn't have data back in those. Well, apart, they had maybe physical notebooks or physical ledgers, but that was a completely different challenge. So I think a benefit, and that's what we're also seeing from many um, fintech startups or and similar, is that they are created in an environment where data is um, as ubiquitous as oil was for the early industrial companies, um, which means that they will design their companies around being able to handle and scale with data, which will give them completely different competitive advantage as opposed to large companies which have organizations not centered around data and they would need to restructure it and find what, what works what works for them. Mm. So this could be one area where a smaller firm um, mm. just need to make sure that they don't build the they don't build the the leaning power of Pisa, mm. but rather uh, as we have in Malmo the turning torso, which is a very straight and nice building. Mm. It's not leaning at all because it has a good solid foundation. It's a very nice uh, a visual, I think. Yeah, uh, very very nice. Also, yeah, can can just agree with that, and I think the beauty is also that once you know once you have a good data infrastructure and a good solid foundation as as you mentioned to stand on then data i would argue you know can become even more valuable than oil because you can reuse it for many different use cases so in contrast to oil which you can unfortunately only use for one in one particular use case and then it's uh, co2 then uh, you know you can continue to leverage data if it's in marketing if it's in in forecasting sales if it's in recommendation systems over and over again where wherever your imagination basically sets the limit uh, there so i think that's quite exciting at least from my point of view working with data science and machine learning and data that there is uh, yeah there is so much potential to to work to do so much with so little in a sense uh, especially combining you know all this cloud platforms and almost infinite scaling on the compute part, uh, you know, as well. I, I think that's a really good point. And that's something actually I wanted to do as a follow up question, but now you answered it before. And that's, I mean, when we talk about machine learning and predictions and fraud and, and our natural language processing, we think of things that we do point in time, right? But there's a data trail to this uh, that I think more and more people are leveraging for, for making business. And I think 
um, turning to Arwen here, and I think uh, you as, a, as an old institution, I mean you as, in, in the, as the bank, not you as you, uh, as an old institution, are you leveraging your old data sets in a way that puts you apart or, or have like a head start towards the new and perhaps more agile uh, fintech startups? I mean, you have, you must have much more data already. Could you leverage that in some way to make more business value? That is true, and that is a, a good point. Of course, we have not only larger amounts of data, but we also have longer time series. Yes. Um, particularly, again, being, I guess, one of the benefits of being in a regulated environment is that pretty quickly when these new technologies come, you have to jump on them. You cannot be a bank and not be um, digitalized and, and not work with, with data. That would just be purely an impossibility. So we were, of course, quite early adapters of it, but then going back to, to, to Marcus's point, which I also think was, is real good, it's that it also goes on how you use the data. So of course you can amass large amounts of data, but you also need to find a way in which you can utilize it in the best possible way. So, and that's also been something that's been very important as we are designing our new kind of analytics landscape or updating our existing analytics landscape, I should say, is that these tremendous or these huge gargantuan data sets that we have, um, as Marcus raised, how do we utilize them the best way possible? And um, because that is, of course, a, a, a very important competitive advantage and um, if we can leverage it in the correct way. Yeah, I think. Um, I think that's ever, something every company should think of when you start working with data is to to actually have to leverage in the long run. But then there's the challenge of GDPR in Europe uh, where we can't collect data that we haven't asked for. We can't use it for things that we didn't ask for, uh, for, for one thing. Um, so I'm not sure I like like, uh, you know, big question. Maybe the last question is, what do you think about this? I mean, GDPR, when I was working in research, that's clearly hampering research. So I was uh, pretty bummed out that that GDPR was an issue uh, or in, in effect then, but as a private person, I really like it. So where do you see this this momentum going? Is it are we going back to to less GDPR stuff now or more in Europe? I think from my point of view, it's, it's quite interesting because if you, you know, on one hand, we want you know, we want the personalized experience because it makes things relevant. On the other hand, we want, uh, you know, good privacy as well. We don't want to be tracked. Mm. It's, it's a fine line between, you know, how do you present a personalized experience without being creepy also, mm. you know, especially in baby shop group, we sell to parents. So you don't want to be too good either in your personalization, let's say too. So it's, it's a fine line. I agree with that. On the other hand, you know, going into maybe more machine learning heavy topics. There is also the maybe, you know, gray zone or topic for discussion that you can use this. Let's say you can only have it for a certain period of time then, and then you have to get rid of the data. You could, you know, you could train models uh, incrementally with this data. And then, you know, you would you would keep the information somewhere in the neural networks mm. weights, right? But you would not have the data anymore. Mm. So. So you, you can you can leverage it in training machine learning models as well without keeping the data for for so long. And you know how does that hold up in uh, court? Not sure. No one knows. No, exactly. I don't think we have a tested that one. But oh, I think it's a uh, it's a fine line between personalization and relevancy and and privacy constraints as well. What do you mm -hmm. think, Orwin? Yeah. The, the... 
the future is probably somewhere um you know in the intersection of um transparency and consent uh, that it may be possible to utilize data even very personal data but today it hasn't especially before gdpr it hasn't always been very transparent which of my data is i mean how is it collected how is it being used which companies that are using it which third parties get access to it where in the world does it actually um, reside and, and so and how long is it in those on those servers and so forth and so forth and of course as you alluded to people like the personalized experience but they also want privacy and there it would be beneficial if it was clearly provided information that this is the options that you have if you wish you can have a super tailored super personalized experience but then um, your data will be used in this and that way whereas some other users that can choose to opt out and say well they don't want any data to be harvested and even if that means that they have a less personal experience, then that's their choice. And I think that with, with more sophisticated technology, it is becoming more possible. I and mean, we have seen, for instance, GDPR, but also uh, individual companies like Apple enabling certain uh, privacy uh, functionalities, which allows for their users to decide just how much data they wish to share. So I think we'll see more of a scattered landscape in the future where some users will have will opt for very personal uh, products and share a lot of data, whereas some others will choose to just take the sort of big off-the-shelf um, options with smaller amounts, with sharing smaller amounts of data, personal data. Yeah, I can uh, can only agree there. I think that uh, I think also first-party data will be more and more important for to you know as as possible possible possibilities for third-party data will probably diminish. As well, uh, and then, as you mentioned, transparency and being honest and very, very clear towards your customers and your users, and also not only from our point of view as you know working companies, but from the consumer. I think the the can't find a good word for it, maybe, but you know the knowledge and the 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 want for this, I think, is growing very rapidly as well in the the on the consumer end to to want this as well it's not something that just uh, the european union wants i think it's something that the, the consumer wants as well so i think it's uh, good that we have a uh, work towards that i think on just on that topic alone we could uh, start a new podcast i think <laughs> um but with that one i'll definitely just um end the podcast there i just want to say a massive thank you um for everyone who's still listening and thank you to everyone who's been involved in the podcast um today it's been a really good talk um so thank you marcus Fredrin, and arwin